1 Timothy chapter 3. We're continuing our series. We're not going through the whole book, but the central chapters. 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read the opening paragraph, which is verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Maybe about 80% of the way through your Bible. Middle of the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7 says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather as brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're grateful for the same truths that we've been singing about. We were rebellious sinners We had our own hell-bound race thinking we were good or totally oblivious to any divine realities, but you in your mercy brought us the truth. You in your love two millennia ago sent your son to teach the truth, to live the truth, and then to die in place of sinners and to be gloriously raised in victory over sin and death. We thank you that Christ is our redeemer, our savior, our Lord, and we thank you that it is his spirit working in us as we study your word, as we rehearse your truths to conform us more into his likeness. Do that for us this morning, we pray, not just for us individually, but corporately as a church. May we better reflect the glory and the beauty and the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. There are memories as a child that you have that are distinct, like one-time issues, one-time events. And there are memories that you get of things that happen repeatedly because they used to happen from your parents or in your school. One of those repeated memories of mine as a child was my mom coming into my room and opening my drawers to evaluate them. When your kids are real little, Mom does everything usually. She, she buys clothes. She gathers all the dirty clothes. She washes the clothes. She dries the clothes. She folds the clothes. And then it magically ends up back in your drawer. But my brother and I, as we grew up, like most kids, you get more and more responsibilities. And, and we were being taught to be productive, contributing members of the household. And part of that was my mom's desire that we learn to fold and neatly place clothes in our drawers 
That was not natural to me. I was a lazy child. I think some people have called it a uh, convenience enthusiast. I didn't want to do that. I had a tendency to just shove it all in the drawers. Sometimes I would fold the top shirt so it looked nice. And even if it was folded, if the shirt you wanted was at the bottom, that you pull that out and there goes the whole drawer. So my mom would come in and she would open the drawers and she made sure that they were neatly arranged. And if they were not, she would empty the drawers and say, fold it and put it back. Which leads us to a theological question. Does God care uh, what your closet or your dresser drawers look like? How concerned is God regarding the organization of your bedroom? You can answer that one on your own and you can have a discussion about that, but I will say that the Bible tells us that the God we serve is a God who cares about order and structure. We live in a fallen world, so we know that's not the norm. And we know we don't want to make uh, orderliness an, an idol as well. But we see structure and order from the very beginning. God creates the world. He makes divisions. He separates the dry land from the water. He separates the sky above from the waters below. He places animals on the dry land, in the sea. He has them continue and be fruitful according to their kind. There's an order, there's a structure. There's even a structure to how the days are arranged. There's a, there's a poetry to it, though it's not poetic. It's, it's telling us what actually happened on those six days. We see order in the way that he designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. We see order in the way that he structured the worship of the Israelites. Here's how they were to build the tabernacle, fold the tabernacle, move the tabernacle. They, they weren't just a mass of people through the desert. They had an order in the way that they marched. We even see structure in Jesus feeding the multitude. He has them sit down, it says, in groups of 50s, and he structures how they were going to be fed. There was an orderliness to it. And as we've been seeing the past few weeks, God also desires order in the local church. One example of a church that was facing disorderly conduct is the church of the Corinthians. Speaking to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, the apostle Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that's because in their desire to serve God, in their zeal, their services had become a mass of confusion. There was no orderliness, there was no peace. At the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, all things should be done decently and in order. Paul addresses the same idea in his letters to Timothy and to Titus. They were his apostolic representatives in these churches. And he addresses in both letters one of the most important aspects of a healthy, properly ordered church, and that is its leadership in Titus 1 verse 5, Paul says to him, to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, which was an island there. I put you there so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul would go to a church, he would hit with a city, he would preach the gospel, people would come and join, and a church was gathered, but part of structure, I, I'm picturing a Jenga tower, when you're done building a tower and you're about to start the game, they give you this little cardboard cutout and you have to line it up nice and neat and for those of you who have OCD you cannot start the game until the tower is nice and neat that's what Paul was doing in the churches I've planted the church but I, I, it's not done yet it's not properly ordered until I appoint elders 
And if you want an opposite example, if you want to see what happens when people are left without proper leadership, I encourage you this week to read the book of Judges. It is the downfall of Israel because they do not have a king. We know that leadership matters. We, we know that's, that's true in the sports realm, that's true in companies, it's true in a nation. Leadership matters, and it is not enough simply to have the proper leadership structure in place. You have to have the right people in leadership. You need qualified people. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That's the first chapter of 1 Timothy chapter, that's the, first, uh, that's the message of the first paragraph of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's an important topic, not just for leaders. It's important, it matters for all of us because as a congregational church, we all members play a part in appointing and selecting future leaders. You need to know what God expects. So current elders need to know this. All members need to know this. Aspiring elders need to know this. It's also important to understand what God expects of leaders because the leaders, the elders of a church are examples to the flock. So in reading this, and we're not going to go into detail today, but in understanding that what God is looking for in leaders, we should all be saying, okay, how do I aspire to this as well, even if I have no desire to be a leader? This is what God expects from all of us, and with that, there is a special application to men because we're called to lead in our homes. We're called to be to leaders, leaders in, our, in our communities. Just thinking back on the issue of chapter two, part of the reason women are pushed into leadership is because there are not men leading in a rightful way. And as 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 show us, God has not left us in the dark. He didn't say, find leaders, figure it out. He told us exactly what he's looking for. So along the ideas of this topic of church leadership, I'm going to arrange our time under four simple questions. For some of you, this is going to be very um, maybe repetitive or a good reminder. Others of you may be brand new. You're coming to our church, and we're talking about order and structure. Why do we do things the way we do them? This will be a helpful introduction to you. As you read verse one of chapter three, it says the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The first question I want to answer is this. What is an overseer? What does that mean? Overseer. It's, it's not a word we typically use in churches today, but it comes from the Greek word episkopos, which is used five times in the New Testament. Every single time it's used, it refers to the leaders in a local church. Older translations might use the word bishop. That's kind of tied to uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Overseer, though, I think is a more direct translation, and it gives us a better idea of what the word means. It is someone who provides oversight. There's someone responsible to watch over a group. Today, you might say supervisor. The more common words we use today for someone in this position is, uh, those words are pastor and elder. There are denominations and there are churches who say, well, these words speak to different levels of authority in the church. But in the Bible, that's not, how, that's not what we see in the Bible. These words are used interchangeably. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, it says that Paul met with the elders of the church of Ephesus. And that would be the leaders of this church where Timothy is at this time. So he meets with the elders. And then in verse 28 of Acts 20, he refers to them as overseers. And he says, you are supposed to shepherd the church. So you've got one passage with three different ideas all being applied to the same group. They're elders, they're overseers, and they are shepherds. And the word we use for a shepherd today is a pastor. We kind of lose that in English, but in Spanish, there's no difference. A pastor is a pastor of a church, and a pastor is a shepherd of sheep. So it's the same idea, same word. That's what pastor means. 
In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we have the instruction to appoint elders, and then Paul says, here's what the overseers should be. So he's using the terms interchangeably as well. The apostle Peter does the same thing. He includes all three ideas in describing one group of people. He says the elders are to shepherd or pastor God's flock, and they are to exercise oversight. So that's just the noun, you know, that's related to an overseer. So that, that, that's what an overseer is. An overseer is the same as an elder. It's the same as a shepherd or a pastor. There are various terms. They're synonyms speaking to the same group. This is the group that has the primary role in leading a local church. This is the pattern that the New Testament gives us. Christ dies, resurrects, he ascends, and you've got 120 followers in the upper room. And who's in charge? Well, Christ had left his leadership in, in place. It was the 12 apostles. He appointed 12 apostles. Judas is gone. They appoint a replacement in Acts chapter 1. And now you have the apostles leading. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, people are making donations to the church to help care for one another and support each other. It says the money was laid at the apostles' feet. And that may be a, a literal picture, but it also speaks of their leadership. They're the ones deciding how this money is going to be distributed. So there's only, in the beginning, one gathering of Christians. That's the church in Jerusalem, and the leaders there were the apostles. But that begins to change. The apostles are going out, and they're going to be the witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. By the time we get to Acts 11, we see another group of leaders emerging there in Jerusalem, and they were known as the elders. That's not a new term to, to Jews. There were elders in cities. It was literally the older men. Sometimes elders is used just to speak of older men, not just the, the, the leaders of, of a local group. But cities had elders. They, they conducted business. People then in Acts 11, they're giving money, and it says the money is being laid at the feet of the elders, being directed to the elders. The, the leadership had, had shifted. And that's important to understand because there is no indication in the Bible at all that the apostles were intended or ever acted as some continuing centralized global leadership of the church. That's actually a part of what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. The apostles delegated new leaders and they're over all of Christendom. That's not what we see in the New Testament. There's only one generation of apostles. Ephesians 2 says they're the foundation of the church and then what gets built is local churches. Every local church is given its own group of elders or overseers or pastors. And that is what leads us to the idea, which the word's not in the Bible, but the idea is of church autonomy. That is, every local church governs itself. That, that's the structure Paul put in place. When Paul goes on his missionary journeys in Acts 13, he's a, a leader or an elder there at the church of Antioch. He leaves with Barnabas and he preaches and churches are planted. There's a community of believers there, and then in finishing that work, he appoints elders. That's what it says in Acts 14, 21 through 23. He, he, he plants churches, then he goes back and says, I need to put elders there. So again, an overseer is a pastor, is an elder. That's the group that provides the, the, the primary or the highest level of leadership in a local church. Second question is, what do they do? What do elders and overseers do? What are they responsible for? This is not the main point in the passage. I think the church would have understood this already, but it is important to know. The Bible gives some specific commands that are tied to action. Some Bible gives generic commands. Elders are called in scripture to teach the flock. They protect the flock. They pray for the flock. 
They watch over the flock. They serve as examples to the flock. They equip the flock. That's the role of a shepherd. If you were a a literal shepherd, your job was to take care of the sheep and you want to get them as fat and as healthy as you could. That's, That's the job of the pastor. That's the job of the shepherd. That's the, the job of the pastor in the church is see that the church are growing spiritually. An elder is feeding people the word of God and then helping them live that out. It's, it's part of what the Great Commission says. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And Paul said that. He said, I, I have not uh, shrunken back from giving you the whole counsel of God. We who are elders are charged with caring for the flock God has placed in our care and that flock is our members. On a practical level, that means that we're making decisions that concern the whole church. We're praying for the church, and and whether formally or informally, we're teaching, we're encouraging, we're admonishing. In Ephesians 4, specifically, we've covered this, says that the pastors and teachers are responsible to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So our basic function is to see that all of us are maturing in our ability to minister for the glory of Christ and growing in our faith. We're not above, we're not superior, we're not, we're not above them in terms of worth. We lead them, but we're sheep ourselves. So we're shepherd, shepherds and we're sheep. Those are the elders, that's what we do. This is now bringing us to the third question, which is the focus of this passage. What are the qualifications? What are the requirements for someone to become or, or to continue serving as a pastor, an elder, and an overseer? I'm gonna summarize my answer with four responses. Number one, an elder, an overseer, a pastor is to be a man. I won't spend too much time here because we've already covered that at the end of chapter two. Verse 11 and 12 told us a woman is to be characterized by silence and submission in the gathering of a local church. So she's not to teach the congregation. She's not to have authority over the men. And being an elder or a pastor or an overseer means you have authority over the church. That disqualifies a woman. Also, looking at the first paragraph of chapter 3, you see that the qualifications here and in Titus 1 assume that the position is reserved for men. That was Paul's assumption. All the descriptions he gave are are, uh, masculine, which you can't see in an English translation, but you can see it in Spanish. It's the masculine form of these adjectives. You also specifically have verse 2. It says he must be the husband of one wife or uh, literally a one-woman man. That assumes it's a man. This is a man characterized by marital integrity and marital faithfulness. We're going to get to it eventually, but in chapter 3, he gives qualifications for deacons, and there he gives specific instructions for women. So he's allowing for women in that, in that function. He doesn't do that for the pastors. He doesn't do that for the overseers. That is reserved for men. Now, it's important to understand that simply being a man does not qualify someone to lead. You, you, know, you don't want to hear the message saying a woman is not to be a pastor and say, you see, women, it's for us men. And the pastors need to be ready to say, it may not be for you just because you're a man. It's not enough simply to not be a woman. Paul wants the right kind of men leading. Who are those right men? The second requirement is a desire to do so. So we're looking for a man but we're also looking for desire. Look at verse one of chapter three. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, faithful. This is a good, it probably was a saying that that was said at the time. This is a good thing. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
aspires. That's the positive way to say it. It's the same word used in the Bible for, for lust. There's a desire. But this is not a sinful desire. This is speaking of ambition. And we know that there are ambitions that are sinful. Unfortunately, sometimes the culture tells us, get rid of all ambition. Just, just, just be quiet and, and, and don't desire anything. But not all ambition is bad. Paul says this is a noble task. This is a good thing to aspire to. And as a reminder, he uses the word task or, or work. Leadership is, is supposed to be work. Leading the church is not something you do in your spare time. It's not a hobby. But Paul, I think, is helping Timothy understand here. Look, you don't look, on a, don't look down on a man just because he wants to lead the church. Just make sure he's trained and make sure he's qualified. A man who wants to lead needs to understand the work he's called to do and he should want to do it. You see the same idea expressed in 1 Peter 5. Peter says to the elders there, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Don't do it because you feel like you're supposed to do it. Do it willingly. God is not pleased with obligatory leadership. Don't force a man to stay in a position he doesn't want. And no man should personally feel compelled to serve if he doesn't want to serve. You know, my, my, my wife says I should stay on, you know, or, or my wife says I should be an elder. Or people are telling me, if you don't want to, that's not a bad thing. There needs to be desire. So we're looking for a man. We're looking for desire. Number three, we're looking for character, or if you prefer, integrity. Character and integrity, that is the most important qualification. That is the primary focus of this paragraph. I'm not going to go into detail. There are some debates as to how we interpret or apply some of these principles, but I am going to read verse two one more time. We'll read it all again, but just so you know, you may have questions. You can talk about those later, maybe even in your, in your home groups. But verse two says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's the main idea. That's the umbrella term that's going to, that's going to be expanded on in the rest of the paragraph. He is to be above reproach. That means this man is beyond any legitimate accusation that would damage the reputation of Christ's church. It doesn't mean the man is perfect. It can't mean that. If it means a man has to be perfect, no one gets to be an elder in a church. It can't mean a man is perfect because then a man cannot lead and be an example to the church of confession and repentance. But overall, it's that a church is looking to this man as an example of character. And this is a very different approach we need to accept than, than the world uses. In the world standard, as long as you know how to command a room, as long as you can get people to listen to you, we'll put you in charge. As long as you can put points on the scoreboard, you're a good coach. As long as you can earn money to the company, we'll put you in charge. Just think back on... Um, our, our most recent presidents and going, this is who the nation lifts up. That is not how the church is intended to function. Elders are intended to be examples of Christ-likeness to the church. It's not his charisma that matters. It's not his physical age. It's not his, his, his savvy or, or success in business. It's not how long a man has been at a church. It's not about how involved he is in the community or well-known. Hey, this guy used to be a, a celebrity. He's a big name. 
It doesn't even matter how intensely the man wants to. So you need to have desire, but it's not desire alone. There's no room for a man to say, no, God has called me. I will be an elder, and you must affirm this. What matters, what Paul wants Timothy to focus on is his character. It's possible that in stopping the women from teaching and leading the congregation, Timothy would have been tempted to rush men into leadership. And it's as if Paul is saying, be careful, Timothy. Make sure you have the right guy. He actually says it specifically in chapter five of of this letter. He says, don't move too quickly. Otherwise, you're gonna bring sin into the leadership and sin into the church. Take your time. So how do you know if a man has the right character? Because on Sunday morning, everyone looks good. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. How do you know? Well, that's what the list helps us understand. Paul says you need to know him. You need to look into his life. Look at his marriage. Look at his home. Look at his children. Look at the way he responds to disagreement. Look at the way he he handles alcohol. Let me read verses two through seven one more time and and think about this. And again, don't just say, oh, those are good words. Think about it for our church. Think about it for yourself because this is what we all should be moving toward, particularly us men. Verse two, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, a one-woman man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, so argumentative, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Those last couple verses, six and seven, tell us there shouldn't be a recent convert, and then that tells us there should be a time of testing this man's character should be tested. A new Christian can come to Christ, and we experience this. You come to Christ, there's a zeal for Christ, and it's real, but it hasn't been tested yet. A mature man has shown himself faithful over a long period. So when choosing an elder or appointing an elder, you want a man, you want desire, you want character, and lastly, you want a teacher. You want a teacher. That's what it says at the end of verse 2. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. The ability to teach is the only qualification Paul lists that points to an ability. If if we're gonna get to chapter three, he gives the qualifications there for deacons. If you compare them, they're, they're very similar. The one change is that phrase, able to teach. That's the difference. This man must have a desire to teach, but he also must have an ability to do so. It's one thing to have someone say, I want to sing a solo on Sunday because I want to sing. It's another thing to be able to sing. Desire and ability don't always line up. The same is true for teaching. 
What does it take to be a teacher? Well, it means you are communicating a certain subject and, and you know it and you effectively pass it along to someone else. So this, at a bare minimum, would be a man who has a handle on the Bible and on theology and he can effectively pass it along to others. He's not just saying a good teacher like math or economics or uh, any other thing in this world. This is about teaching the word of God. How can an elder fulfill his function of equipping the flock if he doesn't teach well? And why would Paul even include this requirement if he didn't intend elders to be in some capacity teaching? The ability to teach matters because that is what protects the church from false doctrine. Paul told Timothy in chapter one, silence those who are teaching false doctrine. In Titus one, Paul says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's two sides. The ability to teach is the ability to proclaim the truth, but it's also the ability to defend it from attack. New Christians, Paul says in Ephesians, are like kids who can't swim. They're getting tossed to and fro by the waves of false doctrine. Hey, I saw someone on TV and they said this about Christianity. I saw someone on my phone and they were saying this. That sounds good to me. They need someone to come. What does a kid need when they can't swim? They need someone to come and help them and teach them. Can you imagine if a man wanted to become a lifeguard but wasn't a good swimmer? I like, I like sitting high on a platform. I like greeting all the kids when they walk into the room. I like, I like the red shorts. <laughs> I like being the one to decide who can get in the pool and who has to come out. I like the whistle. I just can't swim. Is that a problem if he wants to be a lifeguard? Absolutely, of course it is. And that will be a major problem in a church as well. There will be and there will always be men desiring authority and control and and, and being part of a decision-making team. It, It could be a man who likes feeling important, but if he's not skilled with the word of God and if he isn't showcasing the heart of Christ, he's not to be an elder. This is what Paul tells Timothy he needs to look for. Remember, Timothy is a young man. He goes on later to tell him, don't let him look down on our youthfulness. It's character that matters. Timothy, in the world standards, would have been a young, timid, I imagine him very skinny, okay? Just unimpressive. But Paul says, no, you honor the Lord. He has to keep strengthening him. Don't look at what the world, this is for Samuel, right? God, don't look at, the world looks at the outward appearance. You look at the heart, That's what you're looking for in an elder. You want a man, you want desire, you want character, and you want a teacher. That's what God is looking for in the leader of a local church. Final question then is, then how does a man become an elder? What what does that process look like? We know what we need, but what, what do you do? Just go put a sticker on him, give him a badge? The process for appointing elders is not specifically addressed in the Bible. So it's gonna look different in each church. Like I said, 1 Timothy 5 speaks of not doing it too quickly. But we don't have any specific examples that we can use today. Paul appointed apostles, Paul appointed elders, but he was an apostle. There are no apostles today. I, I, I saw Christ, Christ spoke to me, and I will dub who these elders are. What do we do? Well, 2 Timothy 2 says the leaders, he told Timothy, you teach people who will teach other men so we understand that we as elders, as leaders, 
recognize that we had to take a leadership role in training and recognizing new elders. But as a congregational church, we also want to make sure the church is included in that process. So, so, so what does that look like at our church? Some of you know this. We have a business meeting once a year, at least one. That's where we, do, where we deal with the budget. Normally, it's early February. Part of that meeting for the past two or three years has been asking you if you'd like to submit privately names of any men in the church you'd like us to consider as an elder. And what we do is right after that meeting in our next elder meeting, we gather those names and we begin to discuss and we talk to everyone, who, every name who's given individually. There might be a name that we immediately say, no, we'll talk to them and say, hey, your name came in just so you know, we're not gonna proceed. More typically, we get a name and, and, and we talk to the person or that man and we say, your name was submitted, are you interested? And they, they're gonna think about it, pray about it. We've compared it at times to, to, to you know, dating, preparing for marriage. You're just trying to, we're just slowly moving forward. If they are interested in at least beginning the process, they're given an application. The application is not just to know them. The assumption is we know them a little bit if they're gonna be promoted as an elder, but it also deals with their life. It has their wife affirm that they believe he's qualified. We begin then the process of doing interviews. We interview family members. Again, it could be a man you already know, but you don't wanna make assumptions. At the same time, throughout, this could be the course of you know, uh, seven, eight months, or even longer. At the same time, we, we, we wanna give the man an opportunity to teach. Teaching does not have to be from the front, from the pulpit. Teaching is communicating the truth so someone else is edified. That can happen in informal settings, in conversations, over lunch. But we do generally put a man in some formal setting so he can observe his teaching. Maybe a Sunday school class, maybe an FLG. Eventually, we come to a point where the elders feel, okay, we're ready to make a decision. We have to discuss, will we nominate this man as an elder? And when we do that, we give the congregation the name. And then at the annual meeting, that man is presented, or any, any other exceptional business meeting, he is placed before the congregation for a congregational vote. So he must be affirmed. And per our bylaws, it has to be a two-thirds uh, majority of, of the members who are present. Our next business meeting is scheduled for the first Sunday in February. That's the plan right now. We do have one man already uh, nominated by the elders to serve as that, and that is Alex Mata. So he was already served as an elder for 10 years, something like that. Took a couple years off. Uh, not v gone from the church, but just not in those immediate meetings. He was leading the, um, um, the summer camp we just did. Uh, he, he's coming back. So that will be part of, your, part of that business meeting and part of your decision to, to get to know him if you don't know him, um, to pray for him. And through all that time, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, we want to continue to say, come talk to us. You can talk to an FLG leader. You can talk to us directly. You can send an email. You can send a text. However you do it, we just want you to know we're available as elders to hear you and to respond to any questions or concerns that you have. In thinking about how vital and critical the role of the elders is, I want to ask you for one specific thing, and that is to pray. When Paul was sent out, even when they appointed elders, there was a moment, a time of, of prayer. You can pray for us as elders individually. You can pray for our wives. You can pray for our families. Pray for our walk with Christ. We should all understand that being an elder is not something to be taken lightly. James 3.1 says that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a care that comes with our words because God has charged us to use our words to equip the church with the truth. God is watching, so is the rest of the church. But there is someone else watching. 
And he's mentioned twice in this paragraph. He's mentioned in verse six, and then he's mentioned in verse seven. Who is that? Who is that? It's the devil. Verse six and verse seven both mention the devil in light of church leadership. That's not a coincidence. Satan tempts all of us, we know that. First Peter five says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But I think there is a distinct attack. This, this, is, this is what happens even in, in, in military warfare. If you can a, a, a take down someone at the top, you will greatly diminish the force of an army. Satan tempts all of us. He tempts us as elders. We're no different than you. We have sinful men tempted in a variety of ways. That includes a temptation to pride, a temptation to arrogance, temptation to anything else that could be a disgrace. Satan, as the enemy of Christ, is the enemy of good leadership. And we should all take that to heart. Those of you who are men, husbands, fathers, Satan is your enemy as a leader in the church. He will tempt you to abuse your leadership. He will tempt you, he will tempt you to ignore your leadership. He will lead us to, to stray from Christ to sacrifice and to serve and to be bold and courageous when needed. Satan is the enemy of good, effective, faithful leadership. And he is working against us. And all the more we need to cling to Christ. As we close, I want you to turn just back a few books to Ephesians chapter three. Ephesians chapter three. It's a mysterious and not often emphasized aspect of the church. It's an interesting doctrine. Leadership in a local church doesn't just impact the church itself or even the surrounding communities. There's a spiritual impact as well. We already saw that Satan is working against us. But there's also effect on God's holy angels. Ephesians chapter three, verse seven. Just some of the context, Paul's talking about our glorious salvation, and now he's gonna talk about his own personal call from God to preach to the Gentiles, to take the message of Jesus outside Israel. Ephesians 3, 7 says, of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, Paul says, though I am the very least of all the saints, This grace was given, this task, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So this is the same church, the Ephesian church. He says, they're Jews and they're Gentiles. He says, you were separated from God and the, the, the mystery, the secret in God was that everyone would come to Christ, everyone would come to God through Christ by faith, all nations. And what's the result of that happening? Verse 10, so that... Through the church, Jewish and Gentile, all through Christ, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That is an amazing reality in verse 10. 
God used Paul to preach the gospel and to plant churches among the Gentiles. And in planting churches, he's, he's appointing elders. He's appointing pastors there to lead. We know that church planting has many physical, earthly aspects. Where are you going to meet? How are you going to have enough seating? Today, it means a sound system. All these things that go into account. I'm planting a church. But Paul's idea is much bigger. Through the church, he says, God's wisdom is on display. Not just to the church, not just to the surrounding communities, he says, but to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That's talking about angels. And I think he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 11, speaking of authority in the church, he says, because of the angels. Think about that. There's a song that we sing where we say, where your saints below join with your saints above. That's speaking of those who've gone on. But we should also include in there the angels. Worship is already, has already begun in the heavens and angels are here through local churches worshiping God, not just with us, but because of us. Peter, first Peter says, these are things, the salvation, the gospel, these are things into which angels long to look. Just think about that this week. When a church is well organized, when a church is well structured, when a church has aligned itself under the principles of God's word, and when a church is demonstrating the heart of Christ, angels praise God more fully. A healthy, orderly church showcases the wisdom of God even to angelic beings. And how much more will the wisdom of God make a difference in our lives and in the lives of the people of our communities? Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful again for these Reminders, it's easy for us to be caught up in the world and the things of the world, but to remember that there is something eternal and invisible going on. Your kingdom is growing. Your kingdom is being proclaimed. People are coming and becoming citizens of that kingdom. We praise you for your beautiful design, and we pray your grace on us as we turn from this world as we turn from worldly standards and ideas and give ourselves to what you've told us in your truth. Help us stay faithful. Help us stay focused. Help us always cling to Christ. Help us worship him and and teach one another in all that we do. And I think about leadership. I do pray, we pray specifically, Father, you would raise up strong men who lead, who love, who serve, who protect, who courageously stand on the truth of God's eternal word and yet he will also sensitively show grace and mercy to demonstrate the heart of Christ. May we lead, may we follow, may we be examples worth following. May we be able, like Paul, to say to others, follow me as I follow Christ. And may it all be to the glory of our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.